forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. Public Intellectual is made possible by its listeners. If you would like to become a financial supporter of this show, you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. Not only will you be helping this show continue, you will, in exchange for a small monthly donation, get access to bonus materials like extra episodes and exclusive writings. That's patreon.com slash public intellectual. Ever since the invention of blogs, there's been an anxiety through the critical community. Now that all it takes to become a critic is to go onto your own website or go onto social media and announce your opinions about television or literature or music, what is the role of the official critic? That's why we have these essays that pop up again and again about the death of criticism, bemoaning how things have turned out. And now that Game of Thrones is over and there's hostile words being exchanged between critics and stars, what is the dynamic between the creator and the audience and the critical community? So I wanted to invite Yasmin Nair, who is a writer I have admired for years, who is the author of a wonderful essay about Nanette and Hannah Gadsby. And for those of you who are Patreon supporters, you can find links to her work in the show notes that will appear after this episode goes up. I wanted her to talk about these issues. What does it mean for criticism to be dead? And what is the changing relationship between those who make and those who have opinions? Okay, so I made a list of recent additions to the uh, Death of the Critic discourse. Um, we have Christian Lawrenson's essay in, the Harper, in Harper's. Uh, we have William Garaldi's American Audacity, uh, which is a collection of essays. Uh, we have Ronan McDonald's Death of the Critic. And we also have John Semley's Hater on the Virtues of Utter Disagreeability. Um, and these have all come out in like the last five years. Uh, most of them have come out in the last year. So why? I mean, what's what's with the anxiety? Um I, I know that you have read the Lawrence and piece, so that might be a good place to start. <clears throat> What's with the, well, first of all, I think the anxiety interestingly comes around about every decade or so, as you know, you know you've actually written about uh, the, the role of criticism and the dwindling of book reviews. I think you wrote that perhaps in 2010, as yeah. I recall. Yeah. Yes. So you've actually even written about this. I, I, there's a cyclical nature, of course, to these conversations. But I think what's happening right now uh, has to do with a, an interlocking, interesting set of factors, some of which are actually quite new. I would say that the one thing that people are ignoring um, is the breakdown of academia, I think what we've seen in the last 10 years is this sort of um, 
sh- uh, a kind of a drift as academia you know suffers in terms of d- dwindling resources um and certainly because liberal arts in particular, which is to say departments of English and other kinds of liberal arts programs are the first ones to go or to be cut drastically. As all of that happens, as we know, you know, there's a, there's a shortage of jobs. So what you have, I think, is, is this sort of surge in uh, magazines like M plus One, um, what other thing, LR, LARB, um, yeah. the Los Angeles Review of Books, um, and other entities sort of on the left-ish spectrum, on spectrum of the left, as it were. Uh, And you have, I think, a situation where a lot of academics, first of all, are looking for ways in which to flex their, well, to flex the muscles that they were taught to flex (laughs) while in grad school. You know, they spent 10 years in grad school learning how to uh, review things. And then they came into a world where there just isn't that opportunity because the jobs aren't there. So Mm -hmm. I think you get this sort of surge of new magazines which need something to do and which often read like badly garbled uh, lit review pieces written for professors. Um, I think LARB is particularly... And N plus one and some, and some of their work is really interesting and some of, a lot of it isn't, I think. So there's that. But I think there's also, I you know, there's, I think, a perception that the rise in, quote unquote, popular culture forms like television and cinema and film, you know, and, and the criticism of that has somehow led to the uh, deadening of literary criticism. So I think this anxiety is also to do with a kind of uh, a, f- a sense of angst and anxiety on the feel on on the um, by felt by I think those who think of themselves as the literati and feel their position slipping perhaps. Um, so there's that. Uh, I don't think people are actually reading less. I think I'm struck by the fact that I think about 15 years ago there's all this anxiety because someone did some poll and discovered that people weren't reading fiction. Mm-hmm. So no one apparently was, you know, not, not as many people were reading Moby Dick. Well, the part that they heard about from that poll was that people were actually reading more nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So people are actually reading. I do think people are reading a lot. And I think um people are reading differently and they're reading cultural forms differently. And I think a lot of that has to do that in this anxiety that we are sensing right now among a certain set, like Lawrenson, has a lot to do with that sense that their expertise is being, mm-hmm. uh, their expertise isn't really being seen as expertise as much now, perhaps. It's a long-winded answer. Well, I do think that it's notable that it's all white men writing these books, but also most of them have come out publicly against political reading of art and literature that to have a, uh, to criticize a book on, on the fact that it only sort of quotes uh men or white men or you know takes a colonialist worldview or something that that's not criticism that's not real criticism um the Giraldi uh, has like this terrible quote about the the uh, the critic's chief loyalty is to, to the duet of beauty and wisdom <laughs> so there is there does seem to be this thing of like well criticism is dying but it's only because it's not coming in a form that i recognize or legitimize as criticism right i, I mean the Lawrenson piece in particular it's like it's not criticism if you're talking about a movie or tv or whatever <laughs> i just want to look at him and go have you ever seen a play <laughs> 
I think that, I don't think that uh, for the most part, literary uh, critics are very cultured. Like it's a very sort of monoculture. Right. It's it's yes, very much right. like it's the dominant form of the written word, and anything else is a sort of lower form of art, which you're I find right. very strange. So strange, so strange, because that actually even goes against the dare we say sort of historical traditional idea of a critic. I think right. Um, that is strange and weird. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I, it, it's very rare that I read uh, sort of like an established book critic able to talk um, or write elegantly about visual art or about um, even really about film or, you know, anything else other than just literature. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. Huh. Uh, there's always been a snobbery about that sort of thing. In academia, they resolved, as you know, that issue by developing something called popular culture or pop culture you know, studies, which is where Madonna Rama, one of the earlier anthologies on Madonna came out, for instance, and then it became respectable and even desirable to write about VH1 at the time and sure. MTV studies, yada, yada, yada. And now you have Buffy studies. I'm a huge <laughs> Buffy fan. If we can sneak in anything about Buffy, I'd be happy, by the way. Um, but yes, I think, but, the, but, but I think having that sort of segregated, as it were, as pop culture studies is how I think academia has managed to deal with it. And there isn't that kind of separation, I think in uh, criticism at large. Mm -hmm. uh, so that might also be some of the anxiety, certainly. Mm -hmm. It's so strange to me because I just don't think you can create culture of any sort. You can't create cultural forms anymore. And you never could, actually, without pulling upon different kinds of uh, genres and forms, really. I mean, you can't, you really can't be a novelist today, I don't think, uh, without thinking through what we sort of sometimes disdainfully call popular culture, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I can't. I can't do a book review without thinking through uh, TV and films, yeah. memes, yeah. ghost walkers. <laughs> do you not do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I On some level, I, um, I do agree with a lot of the criticisms about where sort of literary critical culture is going because it is dominated by this new like sort of idea of book content, um, which is mostly just like author profiles and, yes. you know, um, and lists and recommendations and, and all that kind of thing. Um, but when people talk about the death of the critic, um, yeah, it's just so, it's just so such a, this weird nostalgia for things that didn't really work. And I do see this every once in a while, like when a blockbuster novel kind of has this breakout moment of like with Sally Rooney in particular recently, just like everybody has to have their take on the Sally Rooney book. Like everybody has to have a review of the Sally Rooney book, um, which I think is what we used to have, you know, when we had Philip Roth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just like every, here's everybody right. has to write about right. Philip Roth. Right. Um, because it, yeah, it does get dominated by these um, things. And, uh, and it does have a very limited scope of, um, of what's interesting to write about. Right. I think it's, yeah. I mean, I think the parts that I liked in Lawrence's essay were the sort of historical contextual parts in a way he talked about the New York 
literary scene and the shifts and the the emergence of the New York Review of Books. He, and he does what I really do like, and I think a lot of people liked, was his takedown of the New York Times book review. Sure, yeah. Which is a pile of shit. Yeah. Uh, which I don't even really bother reading anymore. No. Unless, you know, I look for it. So my friend Sarah Jaffe's book was reviewed well. And I thought, oh, okay, good for you, New York Times. <laughs> you know, so when my friend's books get read, yeah, then, you know, then they're doing yeah, God's that's work. totally different, right? <laughs> but other than that, really, um, it is such a crock. And I think his what, yes. Um, so I think that's useful. Um, and where was I going with that? Uh, you were talking about Philip Roth and the new, you're right. I, I was also thinking that they seem to be uncomfortable with the idea of nonfiction being read yeah. the way fiction is read, which mm -hmm. is to say eval evaluated and read qualitatively. Mm -hmm. um, and they seem to not know what to do with that. So that's interesting to me uh, as someone who writes mostly, oh, actually I write all nonfiction and I read mostly nonfiction. I actually don't read contemporary fiction um, I read all. Yeah. I read dead white men and women. Really, yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, but yes, um, yeah. I mean, the Lawrence and piece. Uh, the line that stuck out to me uh, the most was uh, the the line about what if there were a generation of writers with no one to criticize them, and it made me wonder who they think that the critics are for like who who do they think that they're they're actually um serving when they write a piece of criticism because i think that they think that they're um uh it's not just about gatekeeping or being like cultural arbiters i think that they think they're helping the writers themselves be better like with that line um that somehow because we don't have more rigorous criticism we're going to have worse literature which just seems like such a weird and arrogant mm -hmm. um idea of what criticism is for or about right or the status that it has um i mean i do f yes i mean you and i both i think can agree that yes there's a lot of crap out there and there is i don't know if there's more crap sort of uh you know in terms of percentages in recent years but certainly the formation of the, the the discourse of celebrity has certainly, for instance, I think, helped create entire genres, which perhaps, for instance, should not exist. So I'm thinking mm -hmm. about, for instance, Lena Dunham's sure. memoir, right? <laughs> she wrote it, what, 23? Yeah. And then helped, which helped establish her. I mean, to be fair, it came out of her TV show, you know, the voice of her generation. And in, in you know, in the wake, and actually even before Lena Dunham, there were these sort of 18, 19, 20-year-olds who were writing memoirs. And you sort mm -hmm. of look at them and you go, what the hell are you writing a memoir about? Yeah. You know, yeah. Unless you were a child soldier in the Congo, <laughs> and actually that particular memoir turned out to be sort of kind of more or less fake. Yeah. But unless yeah. you were a child soldier in the Congo, <laughs> you're not, you don't, you really haven't got enough of a, but you know, so there is a way in which I think um, there is the hyper creation of celebrity discourse, which has created certain genres, which do perhaps need to be critiqued much more. Uh, but I think the, uh, I want, I, I, it seems to me that critics have, have I have responded to all of this simply by, you know, falling flat on their backs and just flailing their legs and in helplessness instead of thinking through 
perhaps into and perhaps integrating into their reviews perhaps more kind of contextual ways to think about the genres that they are being made to review so you know instead of uh, you know complaining about well i mean so for, or i mean i don't see a lot of integrity in criticism today right right so i don't see any integrity for instance around beyonce at all mm-hmm. yeah i cannot you know bell hooks wrote a not particularly great critique of Beyonce's Lemonade. Mm-hmm. You know, bless her heart, it was straight out of 1992. Yeah, it was, Belle yeah. has been writing the same thing since 1992. Yeah, yeah. But it was a critique and she got savaged for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, the latest New Yorker quote-unquote review of Beyonce's, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a movie about a concert. Yeah. <laughs> and the critic didn't seem to know what to say about it because he was too scared to say anything. So mm. he just sort of lavished some weird phrases upon her and left it at that. And no one has actually reviewed whatever this thing is. And first of all, what is this thing? I have no idea. Right? What yeah. the fuck is a documentary about, <laughs> about a concert, you know, yeah. doing uh, as any kind of form, period, other than to keep Netflix or whoever the street, whoever was streaming. I think it was Netflix. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't know what to. You know, I'm trying to think through what it is that critics should be doing, and I think that there, you know, one of the things that Lawrence does also mention is the nine, sort of the '90s, I think, or early 2000s, the blogosphere, the book blogosphere. Sure. And you were a, you know, you were bef- you were again ahead of the curve with Bookslut, mm-hmm. right? And Bookslut's reviews, as I recall, were not sort of fluff. They were solid, yeah. right? There were it was an intervention. What you did was an intervention, and you you were so popular. You are, I should say, right? I mean, so I don't know why critics think that there isn't a space for that kind of reviewing. Mm-hmm. I think there's a kind of self defeating. Uh, tone to all of this which is well no one will want to read us so why not just write crap (laughs) yeah 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 I mean the the viewpoint of um, that nobody reads anymore or nobody reads seriously anymore which seems wildly incorrect um, and that only people just want sort of like feel-good coverage I think is also very very wrong Um, I mean, it does sort of come back to this question of, well, who who is the criticism for? Um, and because there is a, a definite hostility from certain segments of fan culture toward criticism, you know, uh, film critics getting death threats because they said that the latest Avengers movie is not very good, you know, like that, that sort of thing. Like A.O. Scott got death threats. Um, just for just for saying that Marvel is bullshit, <laughs> those <laughs> movies are bad. Like they're bad. They're formulaic. Well, bad. Cri- yes. Yeah. But uh, but uh, and so yeah. So uh, also, like you mentioned, the bell hooks. Um, the response to her piece on Beyonce uh, was really insane. And you know t- the Taylor Swift fans who show up in everybody's mentions on Twitter. If you say <laughs> anything about Taylor Swift, um, so. Yeah, so I I do understand like this kind of um a a a fear of wading in, I guess. But then I guess maybe just use that space for something else. Um um yes, you know, A.O. Scott. I mean, I think we could sort of look at him as an interesting example of someone who often wants to be 
in a more serious space than he really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I'm going to be attacked for making a personal comment here, but I think this is worth uh, remarking upon that A.O. Scott's mother is Jill Scott, uh, who's a well-known... Is that her name? Joan Scott or Jill Scott? Oh, dear. Anyway, uh, she's a well-known feminist uh, historian and critic, academic. She's fairly well-known. And my theory about A.O. Scott has always been that he wants to be his mother. I know that's really mean, (laughs) but I've watched him during interviews and I've read his work over the years. And there's always this sort of, you know, please take me seriously, please take me seriously kind of note. Mm -hmm. And I recall... His review of, this is my revenge, by the way, upon A.O. Scott, just a warning. (laughs) I recall his review of The Secret Life of Pets. (laughs) And I did not watch The Secret Life of Pets because I made the fatal mistake of trusting A.O. Scott. And I made the mistake of trusting A.O. Scott because he had some really nice things to say about cats versus dogs (laughs) in that review. And entirely on that basis, I decided I wasn't going to watch it. And then I did when it started to stream on Netflix. And it is a bloody fucking marvelous film. (laughs) It has it has a radical rabbit in the middle of it. You know, Um, I mean, it's an amazing film. It is funny as fuck. It's witty. It's well done. And I am so angry with A.O. Scott. But what he did in that review was essentially to, you know, like I said, I didn't watch the film because of his whole cats and dogs thing. And I was like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. If it's going to favor dogs, uh, I I don't want to watch it. I love dogs, but you get get my point here. But um, but part of his point in that review was that it uh, it wasn't basically it wasn't woke enough. Mm-hmm. That's what he was complaining about. Um, oh, and I think okay. he had a similar kind of review about the film about uh, Zootopia. You know, critics were the same about Zootopia. Again, these are bloody as you know. I, I know you're supposed to call them animated films. I still think of them as cartoons, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm still a six year old. So you know. These are f- supposed to be fun films, but critics like A.O. Scott constantly are now coming down on such creations because it, it's, they're not woke enough for them, right? So, you know, I think that's also an issue as the New York Times, for instance. The New York Times has no idea what the fuck it wants to be. And again, right. I think Lawrenson is kind of accurate, you know, uh, in, in that regard about the Times. It really should just go up in flames. I mean, I think that it doesn't do very, you know, in terms of news, it's awful. Uh, you really don't. So, yeah, so that's one issue is this sort of a high wokeness in critics like A.O. Scott and many others, I think, you know, who are incapable of reading. And, and I felt the same way about the New York Times' review of uh, Aquaman. Mm-hmm. You know, again, Aquaman, <laughs> let me also say, as someone who has written extensively about Jason Momoa, you know, it's not a particularly great film. It's spectacular to watch. And the only thing really worth watching is Jason bloody Momoa <laughs> because a man is a god. But, you know, but again, the critique of that was not, you see, I think a critic should always take a, a work of art or whatever you want to call it, a cultural formation, a cultural object and treat it on its own terms. Mm-hmm. So when you watch a film called Secret Life of Pets, and it's a cartoon film about what pets do when owners are away, <laughs> you know, you approach it accordingly, right? Yeah, you yeah. And you say, you know, your questions are not, you know, 
are not do these deep philosophical questions come to the fore, but you know, do they draw the cats and dogs well? <laughs> you know, do they seem funny? Those are the basic questions, right? Is it a good plot? Mm -hmm. uh, same with Momoa. Um, you know, it's it, it, this is about a man who rides dolphins <laughs> 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 underwater. <laughs> And his defining feature, you know, is his looks, for God's sake. Really. Yeah, yeah. There's not much of a story there. So again, approach it on its in its own on its own terms. You know, what is the what are the special effects like and so on. So I think that might also be the part of the problem, which is that critics have no idea how to approach in a world where I think cultural production is is no longer easily kind of discerned in terms of form and genre, where I think creators, whether they're writers or filmmakers or television producers or showrunners, whatever you want to call them. I'm really intrigued by the use of the term showrunner these days. We used to call them directors and producers. Yeah, but yeah. I guess now you call them showrunners. But, you know, but everybody is drawing upon so many different kinds of ways of approaching the world and different lenses, really, through which to see things and to produce a quote-unquote work of art that I think you you... You really have to figure out a new way to approach it critically. And your responsibility is such a... And I do think a critic has a responsibility. Your responsibility to your reader is to actually be pretty upfront and honest about where you're coming from, first of all, right? Mm -hmm. And then to say, okay, if you trust me enough, this is what I think of this film. And I think this is where, you know, e Siskel and Ebert, who were writing in a very, very different time, so mm -hmm. certainly. But, you know, over years, their readers just trusted them. And, mm -hmm. if, and if they thought... If I, for instance, thought, well, you know, but they really don't know anything about, let's say, feminist film. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to trust them when they review, of, a of, you know, just as an example, right? So I think there was a relationship between critic and reader mm -hmm. that obviously does not exist. And we don't need to be nostalgic about it. But there are different ways to rethink that relationship between uh, critic and reader. And I will also say that I think critics really need to start being... Um, and they're too terrified to do this, of course. They really need to start being much more critical of readers. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I don't find in any... Even Lawrence, and who is happy to take down the New York Times, no less, does not dare to say what I think needs to be said, which is that readers don't know how to fucking read anymore. Yeah, you mentioned um, in your piece about Nanette, about the desire for cultural products to... Uh, be essentially an op-ed to explain to the audience what it is about that ambiguity is now sort of uh not tolerated and it was interesting that i was i was talking to um uh philip st john who is a playwright and he said that in the last sort of 10 years um what people come up to him to talk about after they see one of his plays is to tell him what they think the the play is about like so he had like a ghost story recently and the, people were saying oh this is a, about the housing crisis right like it, it had to have like a uh, like an angle a deep subject <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> but that they they sort of like spent the play trying to figure out like what was it was about rather you know and it, but i i did think that your uh your comment that about sort of op-ed culture um was so insightful and interesting 
Um, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. Uh, yes. I mean, that struck me especially around was this is in a piece around Nanette. Thank you for that. And yes, it, this is in a piece about Nanette, um, uh, who has a very Hannah Gadsby has a very peculiar way of approaching art. And we can or cannot talk about that later on if we have the time. <laughs> yeah. But I do think, yes, I think that that has a lot to do with uh, the Twitterati driving uh, critical responses. That's one thing, perhaps social media in general. You know, everything is an op-ed. Everyone's wall consists of op-eds uh, in one form or the other. But not really everyone. I mean, I I think so. maybe this is... a. a, a just to backtrack a little bit, I also do think that even those of us who are generally fairly, I think, clear-eyed about social media tend to perhaps overplay the significance of Twitter sure. and Facebook. And I think we do it in part because we, perhaps what we're doing is to create that as a verifiable audience, right? Mm. So we can say, well, people say, and in our heads we're thinking Twitter, but really Twitter, honestly, the numbers are you know, bigger and bigger by the month. I think, you know, I think most of Twitter, frankly, either is non-existent, they're mostly bots, yeah. or the people who actually don't have such fervent opinions, but are just sort of watching things, perhaps, mm. right? Facebook, I, I don't think most people are actually, you know, on Facebook to have expressed opinions. It's, they're there because their niece had a, had a baby mm-hmm. or they want to show off their new kitten, you know, mm-hmm. and so on. So I don't think those... I don't think social media has as much of an influence as critics might like to imagine. But I think in our head as critics, we have projected social media as some sort of gigantic, you know, auditorium filled with avid readers and respondents, whereas that's really not the case. So Mm -hmm. I think there is space for us to sort of retreat a little bit and start thinking about what is our relationship to readers, right? Mm -hmm. Who are our readers and so on? So that's one thing. But then in terms of, yes, the op-edifying of criticism, Again, I think I, I, and I do this with, I, I don't know if I can say I do this with my readers, but I sort of don't write anymore for people who might be wanting, you know, mm-hmm. op-eds. I mean, my pieces tend to go really long, like Hannah Gatsby's, <laughs> and it took six months. Mm-hmm. I'm currently writing a piece about Jesse Smollett, mm-hmm. and I'm writing another piece about uh, the supermarket in America. So, and those aren't really op-eds as much as they're kind of historical exploration. So with Jesse Smollett, for instance, I mean, I'm using myself as an example, right? With Jesse Smollett, I do have an opinion. I think it was a, I think it was a load of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and we could go on about how and why, <laughs> because it was so funny, really. But I'm more interested in what is it, what does that instance say about how the national media covered an instance that happened in Chicago? And what does it say about Chicago and the cultural imaginary, really? Mm. So that's the big uh, reveal uh, <laughs> for Jesse. <laughs> you right there um so that's what i'm interested in is sort of thinking historically about what that moment when the same and the same is true of you know the supermarket in america etc so i think there's a way in which but i have the privilege because i write for myself in a sense just for a very specific audience i write for my website and then things get picked up though right so i wrote hannah gadsby for myself on my website and then it got picked up by the Evergreen Review, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think slowly there are ways in which we we can say, you know, if 
if you create it, people will come. I do think people are willing to read uh, interesting, perhaps not always 40,000 word pieces, but they're willing to read interesting takes. Um, mm-hmm. It is, I think, the publishing world. We've all sort of buried our heads in the sand and decided that there just aren't those readers anymore. But I don't think that's true. And the other thing, I so I think, yes, yeah, so I think there is an audience that wants op-eds because I think that's what floats quickly. That's also what gets people to your feed, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you have an op-eddy piece or if you have an opinion, that's what people like to hear. And then they have people having conversations and then they imagine that they have 100 friends, Yeah, right? So yeah. I think that's part of the problem. Um, but I think we can push back on that. And I do also think that there's something to be said about why, for instance, certain extraordinarily toxic and negative reviews recently have picked up attention. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's, I mean, you know, they're, they're sort of funny and they're witty and they're funny, um, they're snarky, really. But I think one of the reasons is that I think readers are also really feeling that a lot of what the criticism, what the criticism they read is just too saccharine, is just not saying enough. So mm. I think that's also why in recent, I, you know, you said there was uh, an essay about negative criticism. I read that. Uh, but I think that's why those have picked up attention. I don't think it's going to last. Mm. And I would recommend to anyone who wants to be a critic long term that if you spend the rest of your life writing nothing but vicious, snarky, horrible reviews, yeah. um, it erodes, dare I say, I'll be allowed to believe in something like a cell. <laughs> it yeah. erodes your literary and uh, critical soul, really. And it doesn't take you that far in the long run, right? It's, yeah. uh, But it's a career booster, certainly for some people. Yeah, I mean, Dale Peck was uh, a really hot thing for about two years, around 2005, and then just disappeared, right? And now he does like children's books. He's my editor at Evergreen Review. Is he? <laughs> And he's an amazing editor. He's an amazing editor. He's actually just produced a new book. And Dale, I'm so sorry, but I should have the name of your book uh, right off the top of my head. But it's actually doing quite well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a work of fiction and it's doing quite well. And I think Dale is the first one to say that he was, yes, part of that. I've read about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, A friend of mine told me about uh, that particular phase of his career. I read about it. But Dale... He's been an amazing editor at the Evergreen Review. Uh, yes. And he's yeah. he's writing. He's writing yeah. again. And uh, I think he's, but yeah, I think everyone, I think he's one of the lucky ones who sort of, you know, I wouldn't say lucky, but he has certainly taken a shift yeah. in a different gener- in a different direction. But yes. Yeah. And that was also, I think, not, uh, well, I don't know, you know, the machinations behind it, but but the kind of thing about, becoming uh, prominent or famous or attention for the sort of outlandishly negative reviews. And so that's what people want from you. Like they want you to burn shit down and then that's all they, that's all they want from you. Um, yeah. And then and when then, you start to burn, as I think some people will, you know, yeah. when you burn out, literally, and it does cause burnout, I yeah. think in people, um, you know, that's that. Yeah. You know, it's unfortunate that, well, I, I feel like I've had to make my own space because for various reasons but I think we don't have the space anymore for writers to kind of become other people during the course of their careers right Um, my friend Naomi Walker who's just this wonderful person and um, astonishingly creative and has done a ton of different things including uh, you know I think she was the 
she was with some German punk rock band as a publicist and so on. She's done, she had this fantastic career, but she do a representation of her career the other day. And it was this kind of tangled, you know, uh, like a ball of string. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I feel sad for people who don't have that opportunity, mm -hmm. right? That you start, say, as a writer of, say, book. I started as an op-ed writer. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, you know, this is just getting really tiring. And then I turned, went into book reviews. But I could do all of that because I had Windy City Times, which didn't pay me <laughs> very much. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, because it was a small independent, and it still is, and in small independent gay paper, I could do a lot of different things, you know. And mm -hmm. then I, so then I started doing book reviews. And then I slowly became the world's oldest cub reporter <laughs> you know and they would send me out to like the worst friggin' gigs because I was the new kid on the block yeah but that I learned reporting and journalism from the ground up mm. at a local gay paper and that sort of opportunity I don't think is available no no I mean particularly with um you know, the rise of journalism schools and graduate school and MFAs and everything yeah. else. Like it just becomes like just a, a barrier. It's just, you know, major newspapers stop looking at anything that anybody that didn't come out of journalism school or have an MFA or whatever, because it's just like a, you know, you got to weed it out somehow, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, it just, um, it, there's a, it, limits who can maneuver like that um yeah it, because there's such you know you've probably noticed in in our culture the uh the dominance of the, of the brand of the writer and <laughs> the, the branding the i know branding <laughs> brand um, yourself like yeah dogs. like yes. cows yes. um yeah it, it's really hard to uh to get around that and resist it um you'll take you know financial hits if you if you if you refuse to sort of play along with that culture, I think. Yes, there's that. And then there's the fact that I've noticed that a lot of uh, writers coming up will go to something like a local independent uh, gay newspaper and already want to become, w want to be seen as Lena Dunham. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what have you written again? <laughs> and, you know, I hate, I, I I don't like it when people sort of look down at the young uns and say, you need to do X and Y, you need to suffer. I don't think people should suffer. Mm -hmm. I think, I for one thing, I would like to see people get paid much more at the start of their careers and so on. So I don't think people should suffer. But it is interesting that actually a lot of emergent writers, quote unquote, see themselves as already formed. Mm -hmm. So it's weird because they don't actually learn anything and they have the sort of career that maybe lasts for about, you know, if you're lucky, maybe five years. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I know of someone. Yeah. Anyway. I'm, yeah. I give any details it'll give away too much but yeah know. the the eagerness to professionalize i find yes. distressing and yes. I, and the reluctance to sort of um learn the uh, apprenticeship right rather than right. these sort of you know That's institutions i think it makes a big difference um i didn't know what the fuck i was doing when i started books it was just like learning in right. public which is embarrassing but you know like <laughs> uh but when you started yeah. books there was also a different culture where i think your readers were also willing to go with you mm -hmm. you know you had this incredible audience that said yeah, this is great. This is an amazing experiment. Yay, yeah. we're all in it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, together. And I wonder if anyone 
could or has started that. You know, Evergreen Review in its sort of resurgence, as you know better than I do, because I think you're much more aware of literary history. I wasn't when they asked me to write my manifesto for them. But Evergreen Review has, you know, this long history, mm -hmm. right, of of having been this extremely brave publication for many years and then being suspended and so on. So they're renewing it as it were, and it's, mostly, it's all online right now. But there is a way in which I think its supporters are willing to kind of go along with it. And mm. a lot of it has to do with people's memories of Evergreen Review. Yeah. Um, you know, there's yeah. a lot of uh, there's a lot of fondness for what ER has represented and so on. But I think, again, the fact that that can happen. I, I So I do think it's possible for this to happen. I certainly feel it in an extraordinarily small way. Because I have people who donate, you know, who subscribe to mm -hmm. me, despite the fact that there are, you know, like this last month, I Suffered um, a horrendous personal problem <laughs> that I can't discuss <laughs> out loud. But, you know, so I haven't been able to write as much, but people are still willing to say, you know, we believe in you. Sometimes it takes you six fucking months to produce a piece, but then when you produce it, it's so great. <laughs> well, I think it's great. But, you know, so I, I, I feel like in a very small way, I, I do feel like, yes, there's a whole bunch of people who are willing to give me two, five, ten dollars a month, mm -hmm. sometimes more, uh, to support me and knowing full well that I won't be producing six pieces a month, mm -hmm. um, but that my process is continuing, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. the ha I, I do think there's that kind of faith that people can have in in certain kinds of writers. Yeah, I... I I find the lack of faith in readers strange. Um, and the the idea that what they want is just is just garbage. Um, you know, uh, yeah, sometimes people like garbage, but uh, I think that there will always be a resistance to that in the long term. Um, but uh, and yeah. What, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. What no, qualifies as garbage? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the other thing I got in Lawrence and I get a lot in, in a lot of other people is this weird elitism. Oh, uh, yeah. Right? I mean, uh, I'm a huge, have you talked about Buffy yet? I'm a huge fan <laughs> of Buffy. <laughs> about every two years, I watch the entire cycle, uh, you know, from start to finish. And I just finished one cycle. And... There is so much, you know, to think about for me in, in terms of Buffy and death and Buffy and sex and Buffy and love and Buffy and friendship and so on. And there are ways in which that can be really bad criticism, right? Mm -hmm. But I think, again, you process that, right? And I think also that's what fan communities can do. So you could, for instance, be part of a fan community, a very intense online fan community, uh, where you're talking about, say, Buffy, or you're talking about uh, Game of Thrones in very particular ways. And that helps you process and get to a place where you're thinking in a somewhat different register, critically about, say, for instance, the form of the show, mm -hmm. right? Or you're thinking about, well, okay, you could, for instance, you know, think about, well, what is this, what is Game of Thrones, you know, the obsession with these white walkers, which are the zombies of the show, how does that play out with, say, the zombies in Walking Dead? Mm -hmm. You know, there are ways in which I think fan culture and being very absorbed and immersed in it actually helps you process a lot of the processing that you do have to do. You know, you have to sort of, experience a novel, experience a play almost on a visceral level before you can move on to that next stage of critically reviewing it. Mm -hmm. And that's what fan culture allows you to do. Now, the fact, of course, yes, is that a lot of stuff on, you know, on the internet in, in the form of blogs 
tends to not perhaps go beyond that. But that's fine too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's their internet. They can do whatever they want with it. But to sort of disavow that as somehow unimportant or, you know, to to be so contemptuous of it. um, Yes. And then the other thing that I think a lot of these critics of criticism or whatever we want to call them, Lawrence and et al. tend to forget is the is, again, the sheer elitism of intellectual communities, Mm -hmm. right? So when you talk about the days of Samuel Johnson, you know, (laughs) and then there's always the 18th century newspaper and Addison and Steele, (laughs) you know, all of that stuff. They tend to forget, yeah, these were all extraordinarily privileged men who had the fucking time to go to a bloody cafe or a tavern and sit there for 10 hours a day while their wives were the ones who stayed at home Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, took care of the houses and children. And again, something that you actually see in academia mm-hmm. and you actually do see still, I think, within a certain kind of quote unquote literary culture, which is a very gendered idea of, you know, you ha- you sort of sit around at home and you flail around on your computer or wherever and you produce ideas. And who's doing the work to keep your household going is never spoken of, right? Mm-hmm. Who keeps the home fires going? Um, and that's true of academia. That's true of literary figures as well. And it's certainly about people with a certain class privilege who are able to do that as well. And that, of course, also gets forgotten. You know, when people talk about Bloomsbury or when people talk about these literary circles, all those horrible gender dynamics, right, Mm -hmm. uh, are forgotten. Well, that's what bothered me so much about the the introduction to the Lawrenson essay about this sort of hypothetical couple who likes culture and, and the sort of uh, snobbery in that of like, well, how how dare these cultured people listen to podcasts and read novels and ask for recommendations and how watch shows and stuff like that without the intellectual rigor of Christian Lawrenson to guide them <laughs> through the process? Like, come the fuck on. Anyway, uh, it was so it made me so livid. Like, what's wrong with pleasure, and what's wrong with um, watching a TV show? And for fuck's sake, pleasure, darling. The left hates pleasure. (laughs) The left hates pleasure. And I identify Lawrence and not necessarily as some radical, you know, socialist lefty person, but broadly speaking, right, sort of liberal left perspective. The left hates pleasure. Mm -hmm. That's also, I think, a fundamental problem with criticism today is that critics are living in a world where it's really hard for people to gain pleasure because people's lives are so fucked up. Mm -hmm. But it's also possible to get pleasure out of things by being in communal settings that are sort of evanescent that may not even actually exist. You know, you're on Twitter or you're on social media, you know, you're on Facebook. and the but people are looking for ways to I think enjoy life and if you know if that means Game of Thrones if that means asking hey you know what are the recommendations do people have I mean that's also what's pissing critics off is that no one's asking them anymore mm-hmm. they're asking each other yeah I mean the whenever a movie is sort of critically panned and then makes a ton of money anyway like right. the, the critics get really <laughs> angry about that yeah I mean there've, <laughs> but there have been like a, a you know a ton of Marvel movies and uh, Secret Life of Pets and the Secret it Life made of a Pets ton of money thank god <laughs> well it's a kids movie of course it, i mean you know but but the idea that that because they bestow their opinion it's like yes. um but that's i think such a limited view of what criticism is for is like do i spend the money on this product or not right 
uh, I do think that the sort of best criticism that I read helps me think through something that I did uh, read or watch that I couldn't figure out exactly my response to it. And it's just like, oh, okay, I I can understand this other perspective on it. Um, But I don't I don't read reviews to to see if I'm if I'm going to watch a movie or not. No, I decide no, that on no. totally other factors, like right. whether or not Keanu Reeves is in it is my primary right. deciding factor. <laughs> Why isn't Jason Momoa? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, exactly. Keanu Reeves is in it. That's it. That's all I need to know. Right, exactly. Um, Yes, I think that, yeah, I think critics are mostly just angry that, I think they feel their sort of uh, legitimacy being undermined. I had another point to make, really, but it's lost, so I let you go back speaking. No, 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 it's my fault. (laughs) I have a mind like a sieve. I think it's the whole Jason Momoa reference. (laughs) Um, I did... Uh, I did want to circle back to the uh, Hannah Gadsby yes. um, because the thing that about uh, her work that has driven me nuts for a long time is her fucking art history videos oh, um, yes. where she criticizes uh, paintings like Botticelli or whatever. Yes. Um, and they make me scream at, at the at YouTube like that's not what it means. Right, <laughs> like, right, right. Um, and I've heard you talk about, you know, her take on Picasso and, and and that sort of thing. But her the way that she responds to uh, specific problematic mm-hmm. uh, artists and and um, and depictions mm-hmm. of beauty and so on is how so much of criticism is now centered um, in sort of online spaces. So I was wanting to sort of bring it up again. Sure, sure. Yes, that's actually a really good point. And I think we're talking about the, she had a show, I think, uh, and I forget whether it was actually just on YouTube or it was on Australian television oh, okay. where she would actually do this thing where she would look at paintings from a quote-unquote feminist perspective or whatever she considers her perspective and then basically say, bad, bad, bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was a little, she, she was and she is, I think a little bit like uh, Prince Charles um, Charles Windsor, I should say, in um, <laughs> in that you know he hates modern architecture. Oh. <laughs> so they he, they did the show with him once, basically you know traveling down the Thames and pointing to buildings, and the new buildings were bad, the old <laughs> ones were good, good, and he would literally just point and say good, bad, good, bad. Um, and I think that's kind of her take on criticism as well. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there is this sense in which. And I see this in the art world as well. Um, And I'm thinking of something like, for instance, the controversy around uh, Dana Schultz's painting of Emmett Till. Um, And, you know, Hyperallergic has been covering all these protests at various museums. uh, And I have mixed sort of feelings about the protest, but the I'm thinking about the Emmett Till in particular, you know, this idea that no one can even watch, look at something if we tell you not to look at it. So right. you can't even look at something to argue about it. And that was sort of, I think, the response around the Emmett Till uh, painting. And that, to me, is more deathly than anything else. And I think in many ways what I think Gadsby thinks in those videos that she does, she thinks she's doing some sort of a feminist uh, reading of art. And, well, first of all, you know, 
there, we know that these depictions of women are troubling and, and are sexist and often sometimes misogynistic. But there's also a way in which that the rendition of the female form operates within the art world in very particular ways. Mm. And thinking more carefully and interestingly might actually help us think about, well, what is art for? What does gender do in art? Mm. And those questions completely get erased if all you're really interested in is saying, this is good. If you look at this, you should be happy. If you look at this, you should be unhappy. It's kind of like trying to control a child's masturbation. <laughs> you know? It really is. It's sort of like saying to a child, if you masturbate too much, you will grow hair on your palms. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't really stop the child from masturbating. Just, I'll just shave or wax or something. <laughs> <Right>? like <laughs> Because it feels so good. And often what we think of as, you know, troubling scenes in art, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, think about why porn is interesting to so many of us. Uh, you know, Fleabag, this really interesting show on mm -hmm. Amazon Prime, uh, has the, the protagonist is a woman who masturbates a lot and whose viewing choices for porn are, quote unquote, very problematic. <laughs> I mean, one of her lovers finds her, her, her stash on his computer. <laughs> and then there's, so there's this whole list that he goes through and it's hilarious. I can't even say it out loud because I think you'll get some for this. But every kind of problematic porn you can think about, he starts to name and she's just like, yeah. Uh, so, you know, when you think about, you know, d desire and porn and what you find gratifying, you know, you really can't go about saying this. If you look at this and you enjoy it, you're a troubling person mm -hmm. because really to be sort of banal about it almost, you know, art is troubling, right? I mean, representation Life is troubling. Representation is troubling. How you respond to things might be, quote unquote, troubling. As a friend of mine put it to me you know, when we were talking about a, a controversy around, quote unquote, desire, he said there is, you know, and objectification. He said there's just no desire without objectification. Mm. And this is so true. <laughs> yeah. How you, there is no desire without objectifying someone or something in mm. some way or the other. And I think what uh, critics quote unquote people, I should say, you know, respondents like Hannah Gadsby want is a world where everything is sort of cut and dry, mm -hmm. where your desire is unproblematic. Um, you know, what do you do? Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I mean, the the Emmett Till painting, the writing about it was so terrible. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, there was a petition to, uh, to have it destroyed, which I, and there was so little conversation about why that might be crazy um and Set dangerous precedents and, yes. and people i really respected were were yeah. were supporting it and i was just like what the fuck is happening but um and then we had like the zadie smith piece which was weird uh mm -hmm. about it but there was there was so little um really good writing about what this painting was doing who the artist was why it is disturbing and and so on it was just don't look at it put take it off the wall destroy it or you know like dana schultz is dana schultz is great so we should uh you know. right it was either one or the other yeah and she's and it's interesting because um and again i didn't see the painting in real life yeah, I didn't so either. you know it's 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 odd for me to have any opinion but but i, I looked a lot a lot of her other work 
And that painting was crap in comparison to her. It was very clearly a, a, you know, a white lady who did not know how to represent something as traumatic as that. And who just, if anything, you know, there was this rose and it was really a horrible sort of saccharine. It was actually kind of a saccharine painting in some ways. In many ways, it was actually a really sentimental piece. So it's interesting to me that no one has criticized it for being sentimental Mm. purely because they saw the depiction of the violence as somehow not the opposite of sentiment or something. And they wanted a different kind of sentiment, Mm. I think. But it's a deeply sentimental and a profoundly bad painting in many ways, you know. Uh, And it's completely out of accord with her with her with her history. Uh, Yeah, that was the thing that I I couldn't figure out. Like, why was she doing a political painting at all? Her work is not in any way approaching that. No, Um, it doesn't. And it's very interesting. Her work is weird and interesting. Yeah. But it seems like a weird entry into I think political she, I think she was being nice white lady. I don't mm. know where she got the idea to do that painting, but yeah. she approached it like a... And then she was so hurt because I'm just this nice white lady. <laughs> 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 yeah, trying to get you to feel sorry for the little black boy. I mean, that's really what she was saying. And I think that's why she was so startled by the response. Yeah. Um, it was a nice white lady response, mm. which was, why would you be angry with me? <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah. So there does seem to be um, this sort of growing divide between um, art or culture being sort of written about or taken out completely out of context um, and just sort of pinned out like in in the sort of Hannah Gadsby pieces like look this Botticelli piece is garbage uh, without understanding what Botticelli was doing or anything like that. Or there's the the sort of like extreme difference, which is like to criticize or to write about the creator rather than the the piece of art. Um, uh, do you see any sort of middle ground in these things? Because uh, that's sort of <laughs> what I'm actually interested in is mm-hmm, sort mm-hmm. of this middle ground. But I do see that kind of disappearing right. from discourse. I'm thinking about uh, the play uh is it slave play? Race play or slave play? Do you know the, the play I mean? I think it's race race play. It's race play. Yeah, I right? think Let's so. Say it's race yeah. Play? Okay, yeah. we're sure. Okay. I think so, yeah. <laughs> but if you think about race play, which is written by an African-American queer person, um, and you could, and I think it's kind of thrown people for a loop because if it had been written by a white person, it's about reenacting uh, really dark Literally sexual positions, but you know, embedded in plantation politics and so on. And I think there's a way to think about that play in terms of the biography of the person who produced it, but in an interesting way. Not just because I and I think what's interesting there is that, as far as I can tell, I haven't read a whole ton about him, but as far as I can tell, the playwright doesn't really buy into the whole, if you know me, you know my play narrative, Mm -hmm. which I think is where a lot of uh, people want to fixate on, you know, you know, is uh, you know, is 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 the right? And I'm thinking about, for instance, the young adult uh, controversies, right? In sure. young adult fiction, where people have been 
felt have fe- I know it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. uh, people have felt compelled to not publish their books in entirety because people who haven't read their books have declared that their books are problematic on account of race and so on and so forth. So there's the, and of course they've also said to the writers, well, if you're not, you know, I think in one case, uh, an Asian American writer wrote about slavery, and people mm-hmm. who hadn't even read the book decided that she could not possibly right. produce that book since she is not African American mm-hmm. uh, herself, and she has since uh, rescinded her rescission and has gone ahead and published the book anyway, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think this, I think if when the, as for instance in race play, when the playwright push doesn't really buy into that. And instead leaves it as sort of an unstable narrative, right? I think people are then compelled to sort of step back and rethink. Mm. However, in his case, you know, he is African-American. He's queer. So there is, you know, there's no way people can touch him in a way, right? I'm thinking about Kara Walker, who did Mm. come out in defense of Dana Schultz, as I I recall. Um, The same narrative, but I think her work also sort of troubles easy understandings of even what slavery might have been and desire and so on, right? And she's been criticized for that as mm-hmm. well. I, I I don't know what, you know, in terms of the middle ground, honestly, I, I'm in a little bit in despair these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what might need to happen is we get, for instance, perhaps this astonishing, uh, you know, outrageous play about the most outrageous topics we can think about, something like race play. And then it turns out that the creator is actually, you know, a white Mormon lady. (laughs) And that might upend and force people to sort of think, but I doubt it. That's my, that's my fantasy. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit in despair. How do you feel about this? Um, Yeah, I see so much more of the leaning to, you know, op-ed criticism or, uh in the way of the 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 controversies in uh young the young adult world which just seem to be growing like there's just another case you know uh again and again um so yeah i i i don't know but i do think that there is an actual appetite for it and and i do think there is a resistance against fluff and and that's why these sort of uh, extremely negative reviews uh, do go viral um, because that's, I think, uh, not that people necessarily are dying for negativity, but just that it, 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 it sounds less like lying. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So, but I the, the work that I see that's interesting critically isn't being done by the New York Times or no. I mean in plus one it's really people doing their own sort of personal newsletters and and that sort of thing like that to me and I think that might that might be a better environment for that because if you're a subscriber you kind of have an understanding of where the critic is coming from so it's not just sort of taken out of context of like you know bell hooks writing about Beyonce and then people commenting like who the fuck is bell hooks mm-hmm. I was like, who right. the fuck are you i know who the fuck are you she's been doing this before you were even conceived you I idiot yeah. uh but uh, <laughs> i think one thing that also people need to understand i i wish i'm actually writing this piece about an author uh, I'm sounding going to sound so intelligent right now because I'm I can't remember the name of the book. <laughs> um, but there was this really well known, uh, well not really well known, but there was this book that made the rounds about I think I want to say four years ago, and it was written by you. You know how there's been this um, surge of books by twenty 
year old, most white women, and they've been sort of vaguely erotic, and they've been these mostly older white men who have been glomming onto them as for really in really weird, weird ways. So yep. she was part of that glut, that continuing glut. But there was a high point, right, mm-hmm. about three or four years ago. Um, and I'm struggling to remember the name of the book on which I'm, you know, which I'm centering an entire piece about. But anyway, um, it became really popular in the sense that everyone was writing about it. So mm-hmm. I have to imagine that a publicist was just about having an orgasm every hour because Everyone of note, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, The New York Times, The New York New Yorker, everyone wrote about this mm. book. And it was a collection of essays and I read it and it was profoundly boring and not very good. Who's the name of the writer? That's also what I was trying to Is it to... the Empathy Exams? No, 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 no. It was by it was it was a set of fiction uh pieces i think they might have had the same narrator um, everything you love everything i love yeah Um, i know what you're talking about but i also care (laughs) (laughs) she's like this blip that's just like another white lady with her collection yeah exactly and but so it seemed like it was going to be it was a bestseller because every single person was but i read one of the reviews for instance and the the person who was interviewing her actually it was an interview hadn't even read the book but was going on about ooh and saying something like oh so i heard that you have this scene and you have this scene and i heard that you so they hadn't even bothered to read the Mm. book actually so anyway long story short this goes on you know for about three months she is the talk of the town um a year later, she wrote a piece for Marie Claire, and it was titled. So you remember this, right? Yeah. It was titled something like, you know, I, I was on the New York Times bestselling list, and I'm now working as a waitress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm, you know, and I'm dirt poor, etc. You remember? Yeah. yeah, I do. Yes, yeah. yes. So, and I think that is something that we have to remind ourselves, not just as writers, but as readers, that even as readers, we, you know. It's easy to no one. So I guess the point about that book is no one read the book that mm-hmm. became a quote unquote bestseller. Yeah. And that's fascinating. Yeah. It tells you everything you want to know about the freaking New York Times bestselling list. Yeah. It also tells you a lot about the critical apparatus in place around mm-hmm. books yeah. and the publishing industry. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.